From the Bullock Museum in Austin, Texas, this is Vietnam on Tape, a Texas story podcast. I'm Evan Windham. This is fundamentally a Texas story. It is. When you talk about the conscientious objectors who served in Vietnam, San Antonio, Texas is ground zero. Most of the Army's combat medics were trained there at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio. Combat medics like Jim Kearney. All these COs are go through, funnel through Fort Sam Houston, Texas. After Jim shipped out to Vietnam, he kept in touch with his new friend, Bill Clamuro, another conscientious objector. They met in training at Fort Sam. They became lifelong friends, despite their different backgrounds. Jim grew up riding horses on his Texas ranch. Bill was a wisecracking northerner, like in the movies. The thing that struck me about Bill is that, uh, he, first of all, he had an amazing resemblance to Groucho Marx. And I was a big Groucho Marx fan. I just looked like him with a cigar and a mustache. They weren't very good cigars. That's Bill Clamuro. Bill's Groucho Marx impersonation was so good that some people just called him Groucho. One time when I had left battalion headquarters and gone out to the field, they wanted to call me back for a special assignment, and no one knew my real name. They said, where's Groucho? Unfortunately, they found me. At first, Bill and Jim were posted to different locations. Bill was assigned to a tank unit, Jim to an artillery unit. We went to Vietnam in different units, and we only came back together by pure accident when we were both reassigned to the 15th Medical Battalion for the last couple of months. That was at a camp about 45 miles from Saigon at Phuc Vinh. It was basically a base camp unit. With it was like a, a mass unit. It didn't go out to the field that much unless some of the medics were on the medevacs. When he was on duty in the aid station, I would go over there and hang out with him, and we would play chess and drink beer. And uh, when he had some time off, they did show movies we, outdoors. We had some kind of little rigged-up projector, and we sat on old helicopter blades and watched movies together, and, you know, we just hung out. By then, Jim and Bill were seasoned combat medics. They knew they'd only have a few more months in Vietnam. We were all on a, a kind of a countdown. You were only there for 12 months, more or less. You weren't there for the duration. Jim, uh, he had a zest for adventure. He really should not have volunteered to be a medevac medic because he was too close to the time when he was supposed to leave. But he did it anyway because there's something heroic about Jim. For 50 years, Bill and Jim have stayed in touch. When Bill recently came out to Jim's ranch for a visit, they invited me over. Spending time with them, I think these guys would have been friends no matter what. But their friendship was really sealed one day in January 1971, after what turned out to be Jim's last mission as a combat medic. It was aboard a medevac helicopter. It was a mission that, rather incredibly, was captured on Jim's cassette tape recorder. That recording has survived. And 50 years later, Jim dropped off a coffee here at the Bullock Museum, starting a cascade of events that became the focus of this Texas story podcast, Vietnam on Tape. In prior episodes, we've heard snippets of this truly amazing recording. But during the next few minutes of this episode, we're going to hear it at length. We're going to hear Jim narrate what happened on that fateful mission in Vietnam as we listen to the 50-year-old audio he recorded. And I do need to warn you in advance... The recording is intense, with strong language and vivid descriptions of war. It may not be appropriate for some listeners. So if you or others around you are uncertain, now is the time to pause your podcast player. Our motto was, so that others may live. 
And the unit was very interesting because uh, the 15th med, because it was all volunteer. They didn't accept green medics or green pilots. We had the best of the best. And as much as I really despised the war, I got somehow so involved in this whole business of being part of this team, actually extended my tour of duty voluntarily by two months. I have four days left in country and eight days left in the Army, and I am not on duty. We had four helicopters and four crews, and the first up would take the first mission that came down the pipe. Second up would be in support of them if they needed backup, and third up usually backhauled patients to the surgical hospital in Saigon. And then fourth up, you were off. So I was not on duty when this mission came down. I was thinking about that I would soon be going back to the world, as we called it, back home. I was sitting outside with my new cassette tape recorder. I was not in uniform. And as luck would have it, first, second, and third up were already out on missions. They had a call in to try to put together a mission. They asked for volunteers. So I said, okay, you know, I'll do it. And I had my little cassette tape recorder with me, so I just stuck my microphone and my cassette recorder into a helmet and put some gauze around it and plugged it into the intercom and turned it on. And off we went. We started hearing that this was going to probably be a very tough mission. It began with a helicopter being shot down and a special crew called the Blues who went in to try to rescue the pilot and co-pilot. And they were ambushed and took casualties, including a sucking chest wound. A sucking chest wound is a wound that if you can get to it in time, you can usually save the person, but it's very critical. This action was only four kilometers from our base camp in the Triple Canopy Jungle. We flew out there. I'm in blue jeans. We flew around. We had a difficulty finding the place, but finally uh, they popped smoke. Goofy grape, they call it on the tape, which is uh, grape smoke. Come back to your 8 o'clock position, Dave. I think I saw some goofy grape. This right now at your 11 o'clock position, straight forward. In this particular mission, it was in Triple Canopy Jungle. The pilot had to maneuver his way down through trees that were 200 feet high. And he had to do it blind. He had to be talked down. Two feet to the right, Dave. A foot to the left, you're clipping limbs, Dave. Real good left. Clear down left and bring it all the way down about another 25 feet. Keep going. So he's listening to the crew members who are looking out behind and to the sides, and he brings a helicopter down. Get on down. We see any marker flash, we're going to fire, right? No, don't fire because they might. That's why coming at us. Might be friendly. 
This procedure is called a hot hoist, and it is the most dangerous mission you can perform as a medevac helicopter because you're so vulnerable. As we came down, we could see that the Americans were lying about behind trees. Coming down, we had heard fire. And you can hear that distinctly. You can hear a machine gun fire. We're taking fire, man. No, wait a minute. We're not taking fire. We're not taking fire. They're recon- they are recounting by fire. All right. You want to open up a little bit? No, no, no. Just wait. No, just, just move fast. Move fast. Okay, let's be real calm, gentlemen. Just tell me what's going on. We're done, son. You're doing fine on the left. Okay. Keep moving fast. Okay, how's it look? At first, we hovered about 50 feet off the ground, and we saw the wounded person below. Okay, Gurney, have you got him inside over there? I threw a litter down, a special litter, and then I leaned out the hoist and started running the cable down to the ground. I was kneeling in the helicopter, right? With, my, with one hand up on this hoist, which I'd swung out the helicopter door. We, you know, we flew without doors or with the doors open on these helicopters. This is a big bay door, so you're just standing on the edge, and I'm sort of bracing myself with my hand, kneeling at the edge, guiding this cable down from the steel. And that's when I saw the guy shooting up diagonally from the ground straight at us with a machine gun. I could see, I could see the rounds coming at me. Somehow the light was just right. Most dust-off helicopters were not armed, but we were. And uh, my gunner started like an Old West shootout at practically point-blank range with this North Vietnamese soldier. And they started a real firefight. You can hear all the machine gun chatter. And in the space of a few seconds, we took umpteen rounds in the helicopter. Hit, but he had on his armor plating, which saved his life. Did you get any hits, Kramer? Yeah, I see two. Okay, goddammit. There was a lot of confusion because one of the rounds hit a bean can, which had been clipped to his M60 machine gun to help feed the ammo over, and with the result that the bean can exploded and sent beans all over everybody, and at first we didn't realize what that was, you know, and I thought it was somebody's brains. I don't think I got a direct hit. I think it was Ricochet. Oh, there's a AK Lord hit me. So there was a lot of confusion, and then uh, the pilot is not able to see the situation and he's having to control a helicopter and try to figure out what's going on, but he obviously hears the the rounds tearing into the helicopter. You hit the compression chamber of the turbine on a Huey, it'll bring it down. He tells us to be calm, and he starts 
trying to get the helicopter out of the hole before we take a round that'll bring the helicopter down. Climb, Dave, climb. I'm going to take a look at these guys. Okay. I ain't bleeding too bad, I don't think, but I'm hitting the arm, the leg, and the foot. How better are you hurt, partner? I don't know. I might live. I might not. If I don't, tell my parents I love them. I always wonder what it's like to get shot. Now I know. It hurts like hell. We got up out of there. We were only four or five clicks or kilometers from our base camp. Luckily, we were able to fly the helicopter all the way back to the base camp before all the oil ran out of the transmission. It's a good thing that didn't happen because if the helicopter had seized up, we would have gone down like a rock. The helicopter, they told me later, was completely junked. All the oil had ran out of the transmission and it had, all the bearings were red hot about the melt. But uh, luckily, it continued to fly with all those bullet holes in it. And it landed at the aid station, and I hopped out. <laughs> and my friend gave me a cold beer. That friend was Bill Clamero. I was in the office as the admissions and dispositions clerk, as, as well as a medic, of course. We heard that what was going on. We were all listening to the radio reports. We heard that Jim's helicopter had been damaged, so we were waiting for it to arrive. Beyond the office was the, the place where the doctors worked uh, immediately on the first day. And then beyond that was a door that went out into the open where it was a helicopter pad. So we were ready, and I, I went through the treatment area out the back door to wait for the helicopter to land. Amazingly, when he got off, he was able to hop on the foot that wasn't injured. He was like a rabbit. He hopped over on one foot. I had my clipboard, and I brought him a can of beer. It might probably just a generic beer like a Miller or a Budweiser. There was a great sense of relief and happiness that he was alive. And he claims later, when we talked about it, he was in such a kind of a supercharged uh, state of adrenaline that he really didn't feel that much pain. The pain would come later, of course. Off the helicopter, in the aid station, it was possible to assess the extent of Jim's injuries. The one round went through the floor of the helicopter. It entered my foot at the top of my foot, so I actually have that bullet. And then another round went up my thigh and laid it open about an inch deep all the way, but it never got into any bone or anything. So it just laid open that muscle all the way up. There's a scar from here to here. And then a third round went through the flesh of my arm right here. And, and actually, I have my shirt, and you can see the bullet hole in the shirt. When I went to visit him on his ranch, Jim showed me that shirt with the bullet hole. Unlike most of the men he treated during his time in Vietnam, Jim was equipped to view his own wounds with a clinical eye. He could see in moments what those wounds could mean for his future. I'm a seasoned medic at this point, and I look at my wounds and I realize I'm not hurt badly. You know, if I'd been one foot over kneeling in the helicopter, those rounds would have hit me in the stomach and gut, and I wouldn't be here right now. So I was almost ecstatic. There was a flurry of activity. Jim was strapped into a litter. He was loaded onto another helicopter for evacuation to a hospital farther south. This uh, sense of euphoria is still sort of over me. 
But then all of a sudden I become very paranoid. I'm confined to this stretcher and they put put me on this helicopter with some other people and they're sitting there and I'm feeling really very vulnerable. Somebody said, oh, we're under martyr attack and I'm feeling freaked out, really. You know, I made it this far and here I am strapped in this stupid litter on this helicopter. But finally they take off. It's only about a 20-minute flight to Long Bend at Saigon. It's a huge military installation, the main base of the army in South Vietnam. They take me to the 25th Surgical Hospital. And then at that point, they give me morphine. I'd never had morphine before, or for that matter, I'd never had any kind of narcotic. And I can still remember the pain just dissipating, just like that. And then all of a sudden, I could see the huge live oak tree in the backyard of the house I grew up. I could see the bark and the texture of this ancient live oak tree, patriarchal live oak tree that is enormous and hundreds of years old. That vision was so vivid that I can still recall it today, you know, and then I, I just dropped off in sleep. Besides his bullet-torn shirt, Jim saved the actual bullet that a surgeon removed from his foot. He also held on to another souvenir, a monochrome photograph showing him in his hospital bed in Saigon. Standing by the bedside is General George Washington Putnam, who commanded the 1st Air Cavalry Division. The general came around the next day to give me my uh, distinguished flying cross and Purple Heart. I was still under the influence of morphine, and they just, they kind of propped me up like a, a deer, you know, or something, and you could see it in the photo, you know, I'm kind of cross-eyed. And they pinned the metal on me and, and took a picture with a Polaroid camera, and off they went. In our next and final episode of Vietnam on Tape, Jim returns home, and we trace his decades-long journey of reflection and reconnection. It's a very intense experience, you know, and the camaraderie of working in these extreme situations. You look back on that, actually, with a kind of weird nostalgia. This Texas Story podcast is produced by the Bullock Museum in downtown Austin. We tell stories through people, places, and original artifacts, so everything we do is because people like you who help keep Texas history and culture alive. This podcast is no exception, and we'd like to thank Jim Kearney and Bill Clamuro. This episode was edited and mixed by David Shulman. Visit the Bullock Museum online at thestoryoftexas.com, where you can also share your Texas story in the Texas Story Project. It might even find its way into the next season of our podcast. And if you're ever in Austin, be sure to stop by and visit the Bullock Museum. For Vietnam on Tape, I'm Evan Windham.
Aircraft just departed Medivac at uh, stated tensions, please.